Phil, pronounce your name properly. Phil K. It's a, quite a hard one to do, unless you're <laughs> Spanish or of a Latino extract. Phil K. Q U E apostrophe. Phil K. Phil what? Phil K. Phil what is it? They say in Spain. I love it. Hello. It's Hello, love. Have you? <laughs> Last time you came in, you had just moved. You'd been living in this eco village in <laughs> Fintorn in Scotland, and you just moved down south mm-hmm. to Lewis near Brighton, so much nearer London. Since then, well, you've had a baby uh-huh. since then. Oh yeah, this is the perfect update. How fantastic! <laughs> exactly eleven months have gone by, or maybe twelve or whatever. And um, yeah, I've been living in Lewis and finding what I need in life as an adult. You know, I find what I need in my local area, which involves a lot of cycling to Waitrose and back and getting the right situation ready to have birth in and then having birth and then having the baby now for eight months. Nipping into London, bam, bam, jabbing London. I work in London now, 20 minute shows. You walk to a room you've no connection with. The gig's already started. You go on, you do 20 minutes, then you go to another gig. And then you leave that gig and you run back for 12.05 at Victoria. What a life. But how is it? Because for you, 20 minutes, I mean, usually 20 minutes for you is the warm-up. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Usually 20 minutes for you is the warm-up. I actually think of comedy as something that I just am turning my brain to. Right, so it's not a big challenge. Everyone says that. Phil, how can you? I fill two hours because I want to. I have no problem doing twenty minutes. In fact, I always do sixteen. Leave them wanting more, and the club owners love me because they're always behind schedule. Because shows don't start at eight, right? You get backstage and the list saying compare eight till eight ten, act eight ten to eight thirty. But of course, as soon as they start late, all those figures mean nothing, right? Which is like expectation, assumption, nonsense, all human uh, arrangements, plans that can go wrong. It's brilliant. So I, I love it. Twenty minutes is no problem to me. In fact, it's a godsend. And you've got cash, and you buy yourself treats at night. And I'm a reverse commuter. I'm in on the 6:30, and I'm back out at the 12:05. But the many times I've missed it, most recently was because I try and dodge the fare as much as I can, just using whatever medium I have. Usually, I just react in the moment and see what happens. You know, one time a guy came. I said, "There are no tickets for you here." That's what I said, which is true. And he just walked by. <laughs> then of course you, yeah. Then of course you've got to get out the barrier. But the only way, all you have to do is walk right behind people. You use the closeness issue of London, where everyone's so close yet not relating too much sometimes, possibly. And you just use that closeness and just walk right through, right behind someone else. So it's it's, it's a fun trip. Does anyone get spooked if you do that? The person that you're walking behind. Oh, no, once I said to someone stupidly in advance, like, "Do you mind if I walk really close behind you?" And he went, "No, I don't want it." But he answered no to the question, which was, "Do you mind?" If I don't, you know, it was exciting. They don't get spooked because they don't know. But I've always got a guitar on my back, and the doors seem to close on my guitar, even though when the gates open at the barriers, there's about. 3.2 seconds or maybe 2.4 seconds but it's plenty time but I keep getting my guitar sort of jammed and it's hilarious and so what happens how do they oh no it doesn't shut you know I just mean it gets clipped I've been very oh. lucky it gets clipped jammed but you, if you keep moving they're, they're not made to hurt they're made to stop you from going through them so you can still do it. it's very easy and how are you finding being down south well again you know it's still earth even though it's you know I lived by the seaside uh, up by Inverness in the eco village it's still the planet earth and it's still fine and um uh, you know, this discussion today about whether you, if you send your kids to a Steiner school, whether they're living in a bubble and then can't handle the cruel outside world. So what would you rather do? Put them in the cruel outside world earlier? Right, so the issue is, I live in an eco place. It makes me, it equips me better with my ability to live in a, what is it, a middle-class English town, whatever that means. You know, I, I don't actually know 
what it is. I feel very happy there again because I find as an adult I've learned to find what I need where I am. So I love it. I love it. Your kids are in a Steiner school. Yeah, the two grown ones are in a Steiner school up north, the cheapest Steiner school in Britain, Maury Steiner School. I read somewhere that you were doing the hoovering in the Steiner yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, well, you can save money on your fees by uh, offering what's called a social involvement. No, social, there's a word for it. I can't pick now, Marcia. Uh, and so we covered two nights a week, me and the kids' mum, one night each, and you get 750 quid off a year, off about three and a half grand. Uh, so I was hoovering, but one time I was uh, late, didn't have time to do the whole classroom, right? Because usually you move the desks, you sneak I always sneak a wee note into my son's desk you know it's brilliant fun this time I didn't have enough time so I was just hoovering I had to work out which teacher is it? oh yeah it's the tall one therefore they're tall they can't see under the tables much so I didn't I worked out exactly how much I'd had to hoover from an angles the angles of their eye right and I just hoovered the path from the door to the teacher's desk that's the most important bit so they walk in and see ah it's been hoovered did they notice I never heard any feedback <laughs> the Steiner school never get back to you saying you didn't hoover it well enough that yeah. might not be in the whole it's not in there's nobody whose job it is to point out occasionally there's a big big thing on the weekends where parents go in now they clean the school what are they called the sparkle team that's what they're called they're Seriously? not called it's not called tidying up duty it's called the sparkle team because that is the end result baby right a sparkle so sometimes if the sparkle team do not clean the toilets good on the weekend but this was just during the week one night I could get in there and out in 44 minutes which you're meant to take two hours but shh they'll never know if they listen to this. <laughs> so, had you always lived in Scotland before? You yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. All my life, born up in in the middle of Scotland, at near Edinburgh, and then moved to Glasgow when I was uh, nineteen to do university. Completed my entire education in one year and a day. I went back and collected my grant for the second year, right, which is eight hundred and eighty-eight quid, and then um, just left university. Was, what were you studying? A uh, general arts degree, right? So, which means ordinary general philosophy. It means theatre. It means English with 400 other people who haven't read The Warden by Anthony Trollope. It was great fun. And did you stop because you started doing comedy? Was uh, that no, why you started? I stopped because my friend Morag left, and I suddenly went, I actually don't want to be at university. So I thought, I actually don't want to wait three years to be allowed to do the things. I had no inclination of comedy, so I left the university and then happened to meet a friend of mine who worked at the Gilded Balloon, one of the Edinburgh Festival's prime venues, who have a the original comedy competition called So You Think You're Funny. Glenn said, enter it. I went, Okay, so I did, hitchhiked to Spain, came back, had a letter saying, come tonight. I went through, entered, won my heat, my first ever gig, won the second final, second ever gig, third gig on telly with John Hegley and Joe Brand, who are still known to this day. What a meteoric rise, but like a meteor the size of a crumb flecked from a specky guy's teeth. So that was the first time you'd ever done stand-up? I'd done a little bit similar to stand-up as a student hosting the SSDF, the Scottish Student Drama Festival, where myself and Mitch Mitchell, my best friend at university, Mitch Mitchell, um, no, sorry, Mitchell Morgan was his name, we went and hosted the Student Cabaret Club at night, a very informal affair, whereupon we did slightly arranged skits, but certainly I'd never been to a stand-up club, I'd never known what stand-up was, I just guessed that my ideas would be okay. And I I guessed right. I love that, in that I think you're so... Not typical of a normal stand-up, and the stand-up that you do is not. And there's something sort of so kind of organic about it, in that quite often when someone comes into one of your shows, you're already on stage. And I almost felt like I couldn't imagine you going right. Well, I'm going to go and do stand-up and standing up and doing a gig. It sort of feels like somehow I don't know you were they that build the venue bit, and you're somehow in it already. It's a huge evolution. What you mean by is that sometimes I start before the crowd come in. Is that what you mean? So you yeah. come in, yeah, 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 yeah. oh yeah, because I play with the space. Because for me, comedy is is being unexpected. Oops! Wow! Wow! 
So if you are on when they come in, it's great. Plus, I stay on in the interval. I send the crowd out. And there's always a few stragglers who don't want an interval. You know it. You see them. There's always a percentage. So I stay on. Like last night, I was on in Bristol for the entire interval. People were bringing me drinks. I was mixing pear cider with cheap scotch because you cannot get drunk on stage. Anyway, this is a huge evolution. I mean, I've evolved and grown up as a human through comedy and, and as a human through life, having kids and stuff. So my comedy now is very different. When I first started, all I did was one-liners. Oh, really? really? Yeah, I just did. Um, I only had about 20, but the, and they filled back-to-back two minutes, if I could remember them. So I just I remember my very first gig where I improvised. I sort of went, oh, yeah, I've, I've been, uh, I was getting on a Boeing, and the Boeings have been having a lot of crashes recently. And then I went, although, of course, most of them just crash once. It just came to me, and people laughed. I realised, that's where it's at. Because the audience are a massive psychic entity. They get you when you are being real. And so my one lament for comedians is, go more down that cul-de-sac that isn't a cul-de-sac. Because they get a laugh from their joke, and someone sneezes and they go, hey, swine flu, and then everyone laughs. But they, they need to go down there more and do more of what the crowd are telling you they love, which is anything you say now. Do you know? So um, so that's my thing that, that's evolved. So now the entire show is almost the other way around. I do lots and lots of just talking, 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 and then pepper it with actual jokes which I love I've got thousands of jokes in notebooks one day I think I'll have a radio show and I'll be bringing out the notebooks Britain going back to the So You Think You're Funny you won that and then a couple of years after that you got nominated for the Perrier Award Mm -hmm. and then you won a British Comedy Award Mm -hmm. yeah someone told me that this morning I forgot that yeah my my success was mostly based about one gig where Bob Mortimer came along now Bob I used to do this gig where I'm looking through the newspaper. Oh, I found something really funny in the newspaper. And I open up and there's a big pair of pants sellotaped in there with a big poo stain on. It was like, oh, I found something funny in the paper. And Bob came up and went, oh, I love that gig. Will you do the warm-up for our show? So I did the warm-up. Channel 4 started to see me because I got other warm-up jobs. I did Jonathan Ross. I did Sean's show. I did Saturday Zoo. I did lots and lots of stuff. So I got seen and then that's how I got an award because Channel 4 wangled it that I kind of won an award. So it helped my TV show, which came out in 1997, actually occur. So, which yeah, was called Phil? K Feels. Very nice. And how was it doing the show? Did you enjoy the process? I did because I had a lovely producer. When you make a TV show, you work very closely with a, a wardrobe woman and a producer. Now, as you probably know, most producers, editors are women. Not all of them, but a lot of them of a certain level of comedy are, are women. And they're organising the family of the event, okay? Bigger, high-profile things are all guys, right? But in the sort of mid-level where I was, with a sort of 900 grand budget for a series, so I got Jo, my lovely good friend who I knew before. So I worked with her, so I was keen on making her laugh. So it was, it all went as great as it could and I fell in love with my wardrobe lady who I wore then I remember the most thing I remember about the series is wearing new trousers with an orange long sleeve t-shirt right? totally dorky but she was so uh, lovely and uh, so I would wear anything for her we, went, we used to go to Selfridges and do private shopping with massive budgets and then I'd go please can I wear the same trousers twice I fought for it and eventually on the last of the series at the sixth show which had a theme of water I came on in my own trousers that I already owned and I skimmed some milk, in a, like a milk carton of skimmed milk across this pond I had built. Very nice. And did you find yourself suddenly famous? Only in Scotland, kind of. And yet I went away for when it went out. I went to America and got away. And then I'd already done a whiskey advert. I did the very first ever adverts for whiskey in Scotland because my name is Kay and Whiten McKay is a whiskey. So I co-wrote and starred in for tons of cash these whiskey habits. so I was already kind of being shouted at by men in vans already which is the level of fame in Scotland they would shout Phil and I would always shout Maurice backwards and try and make their friends laugh and one in a thousand guys called Maurice because if you shout back oh no Davy about a 50-50 chance most of the people that shout things out are called Davy so um, no for some reason I always lived in the same area of Glasgow I was just known 
as that guy anyway. So it didn't really change. It meant that gigs were good. I could do and um, could sell out larger rooms, and that's why TV is always fun. You get another two years of touring again. That's my hands being rubbed together and the expectation of a reinvigorated comeback. I can't wait to get discovered in America by YouTube or something. I'm filming some gigs and I've only ever had an 8.5 out of 10. But when I get a 9 out of 10 on film, I'm going to send it to YouTube and I'll get myself discovered. Well, yeah. we had Pablo Francisco on the show a couple of weeks ago. who is, is He's an American comedian and he's kind of an internet phenomenon in that he did a little bit on The Tonight Show, but then that went round and that kind of got yeah. virally sent from person to person yeah. to person. And yeah. that's he's made yeah. a career out of it. My only worry is that what works, I think, best on the internet is about four minutes of hilarious routineness on a Sunday, whereas I obviously want to do a sort of 55-minute show that builds and builds and builds. But I did get one recently with the best ending I've ever done, where I ended up sort of wearing a tablecloth as a cape, my trousers down, dislodging a roof tile that crumbled on the only lady who wasn't laughing in the whole audience. I was just drawn to her because the crowd were in fits, except for one lady. Why were you up on near the roof? Just as a kind of, I did it my way, big finish on her table with a cape. And I'd done some nudity and there it was and I, I went like this, hey, with my arms up and dislodged the roof tile and it fell on her head and I've got that on video in high definition apparently. So that could be the so thing. So that could be, but it's also it's too long. It's like 44 minutes. So I don't know, but it is there and I might release it as a Christmas DVD. Didn't you do, I'm sure I remember a story about you again wearing something as a cape doing crowd surfing across your audience. Yeah, I've done it a fair bit of that, but mostly I did a thing where I did a big charity gig and um, they said, do you want anything? And I went, oh, be a surfboard because the crowd were going to be standing because obviously you never do gigs where people are standing except at festivals full stop I sounded like I was going to say something else so uh, so they went yeah so basically the crowd at the end of the gig I sort of put the surfboard on and I literally stood on it and the crowd so I crowd surfed like a word play and yet for years everyone's like the guy who surfed on the audience like it was a good thing to do and I've only ever done it once but I've, I've many times I've leapt off a stage not always my own a rock stage that I'm on and didn't you do one for, weren't you on the Queens of the Stone Age? Yeah, yeah, I managed to wangle my way on stage, but by trickery. But, you know, by saying to the guy, can I have a glass of water? He turns around and I leapt on stage. But it was the most amazing thing because I was on stage as a madman and the band... Where was this? This was in Glasgow at the Barrowlands, the finest upstairs gig ever with a sprung dance floor. When 2,000 people move, you can feel the floor. So I sneaked on, dived off but I didn't die far enough and I was being grabbed by the crowd and the bouncers who were twisting me like a massive dolphin coming in off a boat. Then I was about to get crushed when suddenly the gig stopped and the bassist of the Queen's of Stories got me back on stage. Nick, right? And he goes, and the whole gig stopped and he goes, Phil, uh, no, he doesn't know my name. <laughs> he goes, uh, have a run up, you'll go further. So the whole gig stops, so everyone's looking. I go to the back of their stage and I run and I leap off over the heads of the bouncers, but the crowd don't catch me. They open up, bang, I hit the ground, right? And I bounce up and I shout, I'm all right, in a fairly quiet room of 2,000 people by this point. Heavens above, what happened? I also had a backstage pass that night, coincidentally, went backstage. And as I entered the backstage party, the sound guy goes, wait a minute, you were the guy that leapt off the stage. He said, I heard you land. That's what he said to me. I heard you land. It's one of my favourite phrases ever. Are you going to sing me a song? Well, I was uh, building up to it. Okay. But you know when you put your fingers on the strings, you, you just hear that. I love that bit. You supported Biffy Clyro once as I well. I did, you know, they are a great band. I actually rate their lyric highly, mm. uh, like I did Nirvana, and I, like I do Queens of the Stone Age. I really accept, because I love powerful rock, but so much of it is just silly words. 
they sing interesting stuff. I like it. I saw them recently in Brighton, uh, and I was like, I was like the oldest guy there, you know. I mean, but at one point I was the only one bouncing. That the kids had lost energy, and I was like into it. I love it. Did they recognise you? Mm-hmm. No, I, although I got a guest ticket because I managed to email their manager. I, I didn't meet them and I didn't see them. And but you know when you're in the crowd and you think they're looking at me, and I was bouncing and I'm thinking they're going to be going, who's that older guy with a beard? How many beards? Because he often is bearded, the lead guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, boom and boom, boom. I love it. I love their tracks. Edinburgh, you did two shows in Edinburgh this year. One was... One was called O Edinburgh, one was called London Eye. So O Edinburgh, was that favourite stories about the Edinburgh Yeah, yeah, just, yeah exactly that, yeah, just things that happened. What's your favourite, favourite? Well, Edinburgh the night story? you gave me your shoes was one of them. We should explain what this is. This is the night that I met Phil. <laughs> Two years ago. Two years ago. For some reason we were all dancing. I didn't, he hadn't met you yet. I was dancing with my friend and the band said... For a laugh, throw your shoes at the band. So me and my friend Sarah threw our shoes at the band. We're the only ones. I never got them back. So I had to leave that venue at 4.50 in the morning looking for a pub with a bunch of friends and the band themselves who are fabulous called Big Hand. And um, we got to a pub at the Scotsman where we grouped and I met you for I think the first moment there. And we all went down. We weren't allowed in that pub. We went to the Penny Black whereupon as we all queued to get in because it was one in, one out at 6.20 in the morning by this point. Edinburgh is 24 hours city city during Edinburgh. The bouncer goes, you can't come in without shoes, which I think is a fair enough statement. So then I went, you turned to me and said, Phil, you can have my shoes. I'll go home early. You said, I'll go home early, like 6.18. So you gave me your free shoes from the L Decoration, I believe, with the thinnest, least shoe that was legally I could have made a shoe out of a piece of cardboard and some twine if I knew it was that simple but did you know what happened after that no ah right well we went in the pub and there's Johnny Vegas at the bar so me and him start doing Jaeger bombers which is Jaegermeister dropped in a half pint of Red Bull right did three of them then I thought oh hang on I better get sensible I need something nutritious so I had a pint of 70 so I'm sitting there at the bar and of course it's an upstairs bar so I'm looking down the stairs and I suddenly have this urge to dive down the stairs so with my pint in hand, I just leap down the stairs, but in a clever way. So I'm sliding, I remain rigid, and blah, 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 like, again, like a dolphin out of water, down the stairs with my pint, which I didn't spill much of. The bouncer comes running down, he goes, what's going on here? I said, it's all right, I've got my shoes on. Seriously, I slept on form that night. And he didn't throw you out? No, he threw me back in. <laughs> because at that point, he discussed the fact that he was an extra in Gladiators. No, in a Gladiator, singular, right? The one with... Was great. Was great. Was great. Right, and so, and he had an amazing um, sort of masculine mullet. I've never seen such an amazing haircut on this bouncer. I've seen such a haircut, most amazing haircut on any man I've ever known. Least of all a bouncer with a huge, huge muscular body. Can you hear my guitar's body creaking? Well, his body never creaked, and from his smiles, never leaked a thing. Um, so it was fun, really good fun. And then the London... London Eye was just basically um, a clever way, because I never give my shows titles. It's the first time I've done it. Uh, I was by the London Eye, E-Y-E, but I turned it into London A-Y-E, I, which is Scottish for yes, and I believe so, and forever, and always. It's a multi-usable word. And um, so I've got a photograph of me in front of the London Eye, cleverly resembling a halo. The old idea is you've got to give London love. It's a big wounded elephant, a big pregnant wounded elephant even, that's lashing out at its carers. It's not a bad thing, London, but sometimes it looks bad. So I've redesigned, this year I'm doing some shows in the Soho Theatre, and I've redesigned the London Tube um, with bales of hay and broomsticks. Can you imagine those poles? I've got yellow broomstick. I haven't got it yet. I'm lying, but I'm going to. Um, so I'm going to be driving into London sometime soon with a few hay bales on my roof. 
Yeehaw! Or coming in on the tube. I won't be able to sneak through the underground with bales, but it might make a good video on YouTube if you set up your own bales of hay and a broomstick. I'm sure if you put them in boxes and then just whip them out in the last I don't minute. think you can get a big square bale in a box, but I mean, you can just carry it with twine like you're a farmer way out of town, you know, looking around like, Jesse, where's my dog? You know, you, you could look, you could video anything these days, but it'd be very funny to do that. So these are the shows that you're doing at the Soho Theatre yes. in December 3rd to the 12th. Yeah, yeah, just Thursday, Friday, Saturday each week. And those dates and links to the Soho Theatre and everything are up on your website, mm-hmm. which is philk.co.uk. I believe so. Phil, thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Marsha, love. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.